Welcome to Proclaiming Justice, a podcast from PJTN that focuses the light of truth on vital issues in today's headlines that impact every American. I'm your host, Laurie Cardoza-Moore, founder and president of Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, and I'm here to educate, motivate, and activate you to action. I want to arm you with the truth and the facts you'll need to fight and preserve our constitutional republic and uphold the Judeo-Christian values our nation was founded upon. Eric Nelson, what he's talking about in his book, which is fascinating, is a rewriting of the narrative that we understood about how we got to the modern world of today. I mean, when I learned this, it was what he's saying in simple English, because he says it in a very, very scholarly way, is that it's precisely the separation of the state from church that allowed the development of the modern world because the church was anti-intellectual and oppressive and scientific methodology, like Francis Bacon, things like that, freed the world from those constraints. And we are who we are today in the Western world, in America specifically, because of that. What he says there is it's actually not true. While Europe goes through a huge transformation ideologically and philosophically, it wasn't because we divested ourselves of religion in the Western world. Rather, with the uh, printing press in the 15th century, mid-15th century, and then the Protestant Reformation, which reintroduces the Bible back into the masses, something that never existed, neither literacy nor availability of the text in Catholic Europe, it played a key role in basically the political evolution of, of uh, Western civilization, the creation of modern liberal, when I say liberal in the true sense, like John Locke liberal democracy. Um, so it's, it's the exact opposite. It's precisely because these scholars went into the Bible and wanted to understand that we want to we want to restructure the governmental structure of the world. What's the best form of government? Why reinvent the wheel when God, who is perfect, has given us a perfect system of government in the biblical model. Let's see what they really wanted. And it's interesting, by the way, that unlike today when most, like let's say evangelical Christians are literal scripturalists who just look at the text of the Bible in translation, these scholars, many of them understood that there's an oral tradition, there's a whole legal corpus body that's behind that. We have to understand that also. So they weren't just looking at like statements in the Bible, like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They decided we need to understand you know, what these great rabbis thought about how to practically apply these statements. So they, they either learned the Hebrew or, or uh, translated into whatever language they understood, whether it was Latin or English, whatever. They, we need to go back and understand, what does like Maimonides say about government, the great medieval Jewish scholar who brings us the oral law very clearly? And from that, that's really the foundations of the creation of modern liberal democracy, which is a complete opposite of what people were saying that it's precisely by reconnecting to the biblical roots in its pure form, this leads to a whole progression of political development, especially in America, from the pilgrims and the early settlers in the 17th century who viewed themselves as literally reenacting the Exodus narrative, that Europe is Egypt, the Atlantic Ocean is you know, the, the, the Yam Suf, the Reed Sea, and that America is the new promised land. Plymouth Rock, that little rock in Massachusetts, which has 1620 on it, sitting in a concrete box. That was the new Mount Sinai. We're making a new covenant. And they actually went back to the biblical roots. Like if you look at the early colonists, all of the statutes, the sources for their legal statutes in New Haven and places like that are not taken from the Christian Bible. They're taken from the, the, the Hebrew Bible. 
And even the names they took were not like Matthew and Luke. They were like Caleb and Jeremiah. They really wanted to get to the pure origins uh, in, in, when we're creating this new sort of promised land in America. How it kind of evolves, interestingly enough, as, as the world moves out of that period of time, that kind of very fundamentalist Puritan period, uh, to like the 18th century, the founding fathers of America, who were less religious, people like Benjamin Franklin, many of them were deists. They didn't like necessarily the, the, rigid, the rigidity of the dogma of many of the mainstream religious faiths, not just Catholicism, but also Protestantism. But they did believe in the necessity of a God as a source of morality and as a guide. Uh, they used the, the Bible to justify their political stance vis-a-vis England, which is a very interesting discussion too. The big one, of course, being, how do you, does God want a monarchy or not? That was the big debate. Yeah, King George III in England trying to tax us without re- giving us representation, you know. The, so the people like Thomas Paine from New Rochelle, my hometown, who uh, was one of the leading intellectuals of the American Revolution, he says, clearly, you look at the story of Samuel anointing uh, Saul as king, and, uh, and God gets really upset. And he says, they haven't rejected you from being the judge. They rejected me from being king over them. And he used that to justify, you know, we don't want kingship here. We have to have a, a, a governmental system that's much more based on the, what the Bible really wanted. So it's a, it's, it's a completely different reorienting. And it goes to the fact that this America at its core, more than any other country in human history, which is a, a modern political experiment that didn't have to evolve out of a monarchy or a pre-existing feudal system, is actually the country more than any other country in the world that is founded on biblical values, biblical concepts, and the morality of the Hebrew Bible. And that is a huge revolution in rethinking that standard narrative. It's not distancing ourselves from our biblical roots, but the reconnection, albeit looking at it as a political document, not necessarily as a religious document, and using it even to justify rebellion against, you know, rebellion against the British Empire and, and freedom. The first, by the way, suggested emblem for the United States, which wasn't accepted. Now it's the eagle, the e pluribus unum thing, was originally Jefferson, Franklin, and Adams agreeing on this image of the Egyptians drowning in the sea with the Jews standing on the shores, and the motto was rebellion to, rebellion against tyranny is, is, is obedience to God. So that, that goes to the core. They really wanted that in there. So it's a very different way of looking at, at the origins of America and how much of it is based on the, the biblical roots. That's interesting also because Europe, which had like Catholicism, for instance, which is a very rigid, you know, religious political ideology, it has a whole structure and the church is embedded into the hierarchy of the state there. Uh, you know, what, what, what Nelson talks about in his book, which is quite interesting, is, you know, th- that there was this idea of separation of church and state, which is always misunderstood. To have that merger of political and religious power together is one because, you know, the, in, this, in the 17th century, it was the Thirty Years' War in Europe, which was basically between Habsburg, Catholic states, and Protestant Europe, which was one of the most destructive wars in the history of Europe. Between four and eight million people died. And it was viewed not that secularization is good, but state religion and conflicts that are so, when the religion is so deeply embedded within a state, it, it, it's a source of contention and strife and, and leads to war. But removing God and faith, no, but it's, it's freedom of conscience. You worship God the way you want, but many Enlightenment thinkers, um, people like Voltaire and Locke said, first of all, without a God, you have no moral standard. So God has to be in there. 
We just are not so into the, the kind of ossified rigidity of, of state-based religions that you have the Anglican Church in England, the Catholic Church in, in France and in, in Spain and places like that. That doesn't lead to unity, it just leads to strife. And these are two Christian faiths. These are not like Islam versus Christianity in the Crusades or Holy Wars. So that was viewed as not something good. And in Judaism, the Bible, you know, is a holistic, it's, there is no such thing as separation in terms of Jewish law covers religious law and, and political law. There's no distinction between the two, but the organs of government are divided that in many faiths, even in England today, the head of the Anglican Church is technically the queen. You know, the, you have countries where the, the political leader is the religious leader, which is traditionally a very oppressive system because it gives the state the control of you in this world and also what's going to happen to you in the next world. Judaism says, you know, we don't remove Judaism from government, but the organs of government are divided. You have a political leader who's a king, and you have a chief religious leader who's a high priest. Those two don't mix. They're two separate jobs with two separate responsibilities. And most importantly, you have a judicial legislative body, which was called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, who adjudicated and legislated, sort of like the Congress, the Senate, and the Supreme Court. And they served as a checks and balances against the power of an absolute monarch or the fanaticism of a religious leader who says, God tells me to go do this and do that. A priest in Judaism can never say, I got from the Lord that this is what we do. Nor could a prophet say, dump that piece of religious legislation or that law because God just told me. It's always, you have a system of laws as a process whereby you create legislation and it's independent from the monarchy. That's a huge innovation which people also don't realize was essentially adopted by America as this, this, the structure of the U.S. government. They just replaced kingship with presidency as the chief political leader. But even in that fundamental idea that we're not saying religion out, but as a functioning political system, there has to be a place for the different jobs that are separate from each other to enable a balanced government to develop. But the other idea, which is really interesting, which comes from the Bible, which is at the roots of that story of Samuel, and Saul, because the reality is, is the biblical ideal is a king. It's an interesting question. God tells us one of the 613 commandments is appoint a king, yet when the Jewish people finally ask for a king, you know, God says, don't get upset, Samuel. They didn't reject you, they rejected me. What's going on? And the understanding, it's a whole discussion, but it's not that kingship is bad. We ask for the wrong kind of king. With a king like the non-Jews have it. It's a very interesting discussion in psychology and amongst rabbinic thought about personal freedom and autonomy. Judaism always used it as the ideal, which is why the book of Judges is in biblical commentary from the rabbis, even thousands of years ago, viewed as an ideal period of time. Even though if you read the story, there's a lot of chaos and ups and downs and foreign conquests, and, but there's very minimum central authority in Israel at the time. You have a, a, you have a judicial system that's set up. You have a judge who appears at a time of need to politically and spiritually unite the Jewish people so that we come back together spiritually and can fight off our enemies externally. But when, <clears throat> when the land goes at rest again from foreign threats, that judge sort of fades away because the Jewish ideal, and this is directly connected to what really makes America great and where they really picked up on this idea, is maximum uh, autonomy and maximum personal responsibility, minimum government. And this is what Protestantism was at least trying to pick up on was you don't need intermediaries like a pope. Get the Bible in translation, which was a book the Catholic Church banned. 
The number one book, people, and I tell people they don't believe it, the number one book on the Catholic Church's index of books that you don't want to read is the Bible. Because anyone reading the Bible in medieval Europe and seeing how the church was behaving would see the disconnect is so extreme. So Protestantism was about, you know, let's the printing press. It's a perfect convergence. Printing press enables inexpensive mass production of books. Rates of literacy go up. Get rid of intermediaries. You read the book. Okay, albeit in translation without the oral traditions of the Jews, but you, using your conscience and your desire to have a relationship with God and live with truth, you take responsibility for the decisions you make. That is the greatest innovation in creating what is liberal democracy in the world today. That's an essential concept in Judaism, which is why Jews have always been obsessed on literacy and, and education, because you cannot be, it's a famous statement of the rabbis, that a righteous person cannot be an ignoramus. But it's, it's human nature also to, there's something comfortable. The Talmud makes an interesting statement that a slave likes to be a slave. Not like whipped and abused, but not having to make decisions is in many ways very relaxing. When it's get up, go to work, do your job, come home, and I'll take care of everything else for you. There's something that's, it, it, it stunts your growth and your greatness and your ability to actualize your unique potential, but it's like permanently being on vacation on a certain level. And that is not, by the way, that is the idea behind much of progressive political ideology is we'll take care of everything for you, your education, how you raise your kids. And Judaism says no way. It's very libertarian. I, I, it always horrifies me the misuse of the word liberal today. John Locke would be doing somersaults in his grave. Libertarians are the people who most, in my opinion, represent what, what true liberalism is about. And true liberalism is overwhelmingly a biblical concept. It's you take responsibility. You, it's, 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 the more you exercise your free will and take responsibility, and the less it's done for you outside, the greater you will be, the more godlike you will be, and the greater the country that you create of citizens who are like that, will you will be able to make. And that is, in my opinion, as a historian, the greatness of America, the land of opportunity. It's open for you. There's no feudal system embedded, no landed aristocracy that's owned everything for thousands of years. You work hard, you take responsibility, you earn it, you can make it, you grow, and you're great, and the country becomes great. On mass, I would say, no, the opposite is happening, that the, the, the process that begins with the Enlightenment, the age of reason, which is not getting rid of religion, but separating and, and, and putting, the Renaissance was about putting human beings in the center of everything. Uh, but, but as God was sort of pushed aside, not to be gotten rid of, but to create sort of separate spheres that were connected, but it, it's continued on to the fact that what you had hundreds of years ago, the founding fathers, many of them were not into like the, the, the standard religion, religious faiths that were deistic. Um, the world has now pushed past that, and now you have people who are pushing God completely out of the picture. Western Europe, especially, the further north you go, the smaller and smaller percentage of people, we're talking about you know, below 20% even in the Scandinavian countries, say they believe in a higher power. So it's sort of gone past, and much of the world is going back to a state that it was in. It's almost pre-monotheistic almost paganistic in a certain way, but God is now out of the picture completely. So I don't necessarily see, and with that comes all of the moral implications of the ancient world, which was on one hand very sophisticated civilizations like Greece and Rome, had beautiful infrastructure, indoor plumbing, you know, governmental systems, great architecture, philosophy, but incredibly callous, brutal places because that is always what we see in history, the byproduct of polytheistic civilizations when you don't have an absolute moral standard. You can you literally see it happening before your eyes today 
in America. Attitude towards right to life, value of life, attitudes towards truth or lack thereof, reality, everything is under question now. So it's, it's, there is a segment of America which is certainly reconnecting to the Bible, the evangelical community, but they're not doing it in the way that, that Eric Nelson's talking about in his book in terms of their literal scripturalists. I personally find often that their take on what the Bible says is not even, is not also not correct, possibly too fundamentalist and too literal, and not the, these scholars in this period of time recognize that you have to understand on a much deeper level what the Bible's talking about, get into those oral traditions and the great medieval Jewish philosophers, like people like Maimonides and Rabbi David Kimchi and people like that who comment on this, and the Talmud and the Mishnah, to understand practical slogans are easy. It's understanding how you take those nice slogans and translate them into practical application of law and government that requires a level of sophistication, which is why them either learning Hebrew or translating the books and going into the sources, not just opening up the book, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you poked out mine, I'm poking out yours, the Bible never meant that. So while you see, I would say on a certain, like the, 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 the Christian right in America very much appreciates the centrality of God and the Bible to the foundational values of the United States, they don't, they're, they're not approaching it, in my opinion, the way that these scholars were doing in the Age of Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, and even the Founding Fathers of America with a much more nuanced approach to it. So, and, and mainstream America and you know, the media and things like that is all pushing way past God is passe now. He's, he's out of the picture. We don't need that. That's like an artificial. They are the ones. That is the community that's foisting this notion of religion is inherently oppressive. It's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like, don't just because certain people have evolved the concept of standard of standardized religious like structure that might be far from ideal and what God wanted. That doesn't mean God's at fault. That's what human beings did with the concepts that that polluted it. And this attempt in this 16th, 17th, 18th centuries was to get back to what it is, strip away all the the garbage and the human added stuff and see what, that's why you got to go back to his book. That's why you got to understand what he says because then you get the unadulterated, unbiased, pure will of God that we need to use because he's the perfect being who's giving us the guidebook. And I don't see that happening in, in, in the, would that people understood that. I don't see it happening of those people who are believers today. And it's certainly the other way and on the other side of the political extreme, it's trying to rid us of all of that and return to a world of complete moral relativism where there are no absolute standards. Soon they'll be saying gravity doesn't exist. But that's the level of when you take it to that extreme, you know. G.K. Chesterton was a British author in the 19th century. He said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And that's a great way of putting it. You have to be open, and you see that much of the world today, you have to be open to everything except the person who isn't open to everything. And the essential statement of, of, that Judaism brought to the world was, no, there's right and wrong. It doesn't matter how many people believe it. Reality is not a popularity contest. And these are fundamentally transformative ideas that the Jews brought to the world that transformed humanity's morality and eventually transformed the political systems of the Western world. But it's all based on the idea that there is a God, there is a reality, it's immutable, there are values that are not subject to how you interpret them or whether they're convenient for you or not. This is the way it has to be. And without that, you have a rudderless ship that will go in extremes, the likes of which, in my opinion, as a historian, we have not seen in the world. 
in, in literally centuries, what's happening now. Very, very dangerous situation the world is in. It, there's no question that the basic, the basic as, as Europe is evolving from a very oppressive feudal system where very few people have all the power and all the wealth to, and humanistic values, the, the rights and responsibilities of the individual are coming into play. So how do we want to rebuild government? There's no question that why would we want to rebuild or look for something new when we have a perfect being who gave an ancient people his system of government. We just need to understand, again, not by superficially looking at the Bible, but really going into the legal texts that Judaism contains outside of the Bible, that whole oral tradition, to understand the structure of that governmental system and then adopt the basic principles and institutions in a more modern framework. For instance, taking the, that idea that the American government of today is based on the biblical system of that separation of powers, not not divorced from God, not at all, but rather the actual mechanics of the system is chief political leader, king, chief religious leader, the high priest, judicial legislative body, the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. We're going to adopt that structure, albeit with slightly different. We're going to get rid of the notion of kingship and put a president as a chief political leader, although George Washington was offered to be king. And his answer was basically, we just got rid of one. You're not going to replace me with him. But we'll, separate, we'll, we'll have a head of state, who's not a figurehead, by the way. In biblical Israel, the the king is a very powerful person, but he's not unchecked. This notion of absolute authority, which you have in many monarchies throughout history in many parts of the world, is anathema. It's completely antithetical to the Jewish worldview. And it's interesting also that the king, it's a great little, it's mentioned in the Bible when the king, every Jew is supposed to write a Torah scroll. That by, you know, when you write it, you learn the law. A king had to write one Torah scroll like every other Jew is supposed to write. And then he had to write a second mini version that he, he had attached to his arm. And it says in the Bible, it says, it says, so he will learn to fear the Lord as God and do all the words of his Torah. That the king has to always remember it as a king of kings, and despite the fact that he's a very powerful person, within the political system of, of the biblical government, he is not an absolute monarch. And even with all of his power and autonomy, he has to always remember that he is subservient to the king of all kings in the world, God, and he has to always keep that in mind, which is why you literally walk around with a reminder that no such thing as absolute power exists in the world unless you're the creator of the universe. So those concepts were definitely looked at by these scholars. And then the founding fathers of America, who were less literal and less fundamentalist, nonetheless absolutely looked at the Bible as what are God's political preferences? You know, does God like a king? Does he not want a king? What's his attitude towards tyrannical rule, towards personal autonomy? So they didn't necessarily come at it 100% objectively. They had their, their, they, they had a view of what they wanted to do, but they were looking for biblical sources to justify the decisions they were making. You know, like the story of Samuel and Saul, you know, God gets upset when they ask for a king. So there's, we don't want King George. God doesn't want kingship. He wants you to have autonomy and create your own government independent of that. I would say from a purely biblical rabbinic perspective, it's not quite that simple. It's more nuanced than that. But there's no question that these absolutely, even in the images that they're picking and, and what the, what's being focused on, you know, the Liberty Bell is a proclaimed liberty thought to land into all the inhabitants thereof is a direct quote from the Bible. It's a little taken out of context because it's talking about the Jubilee year. It's not necessarily talking about political freedom. It's talking about the land returning to its original owners. But it's amazing how... These biblical images, these biblical motifs, sentences from the Bible were used 
as, as rallying points and spiritual and political justification for you know, the American Revolution and setting up of a new form of government based on one nation under God. Well, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, which is an attempt to take like the Roman concept of natural law and, and unite it with the idea that God gives human beings. It's really one and the same thing. But this is the basis of America, fundamental rights that come from God that no human being, no king can interfere with is the foundational principles of, of political freedom and personal autonomy, which are the real, it's the real greatness of America as a political experiment. You know, the, the Bible is this text, you know, that it's been adopted by Christianity, absorbed into the New Testament, contains the Old Testament. That is considered to be authoritative, the word of God. When you mention anything related to rabbinic texts, which is sort of a, a term that absorbs everything, you know, the, it's really the oral and written law. I often explain to Christian audiences how Judaism works, that the written law is not a law book. It's a book of hashkafa, which is the Hebrew world word for your worldview. It's your basic software operating package for how you understand reality and how God relates to the world. But you never learn Jewish law from the Bible. It, all the laws are mentioned, but the application of the laws are missing. And it's clearly an oral text because within the written text, it says, keep the Sabbath, don't do work. But nowhere does it explain what work is. It says, put a mezuzah, that scroll you put on the doorpost of your house. But in Hebrew, mezuzah is the doorpost of your house. You know, it talks about, this, what is called tefillin, phylacteries, this black box that religious Jews wear. But what does that mean? You put four frontlets between your eyes. It doesn't explain the black box, what's in it. It's very clear from anyone objectively reading the text that whoever is dictating this written text is, is, is giving you a lot of other information that's not contained within it. And to disregard that is to miss the point. It's like reading half a book and thinking you understand what's going on. And that's the point I'm making about as much as you have like evangelical communities very pro-Israel, they're very literally scripturalists. What the Bible says, the Bible says outside of that Bible is not legitimate, which by the way is very disrespectful to Jews, even though they're not being disrespectful. I've been in situations when I'm speaking to Christian audiences and I start putting in rabbinic commentary or statements from the Mishnah of the Talmud and they say, Rabbi, what does the book say? And I'm saying, I'm sorry. You, that's, it's kind of the word in Hebrew is chutzpah. You know, this is what we have. We have an oral and a written law. We had this way before Christianity existed. The two are completely intertwined with each other. You cannot live as a Jew without the, that, that oral law. That is all the practical application of Judaism for 3,300 years from Mount Sinai comes from that book. To get, disregard that means you're not going to read the text correctly. And you even come to conclusions that are more extreme than what Judaism says on issues. Like abortion is a classic example of that. It's a very nuanced discussion within Jewish law of how you apply. Just throwing out statements. Anyone knows that statements are very general, very vague. How you apply them practically is the beauty and the whole history of the Jewish academic learning tradition, which is such a fundamental part of how Jews think critically analyze it, understanding what principles can we use to derive, within what boundaries does Jewish law have to fall. This is something that's almost completely lost on the modern Christian community, even those Christians who take the Bible seriously and support Israel. Um, these people that Eric Nelson talks about in his book recognized that you have, to, you have to go back to that. You cannot understand what God wants when you disregard his legal books. You know, he gave it to you. You have to go back and understand. And once you start learning, you understand that anything these rabbis are saying, they're not pulling out of thin air. 
It's always based on principles and concepts that are introduced as statements within the Bible and based on certain principles that are way too complicated to explain now of how you can derive what is called halakha, Jewish law. And unless you holistically understand how that system works, you're going to be grossly misreading the book. It's sort of like reading Shakespeare in Mandarin and then missing all of his notes, his author's notes on the side. You're missing 90% of it. You have the basic fluffy outer layer, but you're not really understanding what God wants. And the, the brilliance of this period of time in scholarship was this attempt to understand, even from like a, a Jewish perspective, almost like you do in a, a yeshiva, Jewish school of higher learning, how you have to work your way through a concept from a nice statement to practical application down to the smallest details. You know, they say the devil's in the detail. No, the holiness is in the detail. The practical application is in the detail. And that's what was done then that is not being done now by virtually anyone in the world, and almost no Christian scholars are doing that. Well, insofar as, in terms of where America is going today, insofar as one segment of society is pushing the other way to kind of go back to a, uh, I even call it like a neo-paganistic worldview, not in terms of bowing to idols, but in terms of the moral relativistic nature of everything being open, and there's no absolutes or anything like that. You know, we say in physics, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You're definitely seeing as one side of the country has abandoned all those Judeo-Christian ethics and even looks at America as an inherently flawed country founded on the original sin of slavery and all that, and we're going to just burn it all down. You have definitely the other side of the country is pushing the other way. And extremes, by the way, are never good. And, and I get, the Jewish approach is much more subtle and much more nuanced amongst the, from my experience with the evangelical community is um, <clears throat> they're not necessarily approaching what we need to do to America. Let's get back to the biblical roots. In terms of uh, big picture, yeah, we need to get back to the notion of God being at the center of rights and responsibilities, but I don't necessarily think they're not going to a bunch of rabbis and saying, what does that mean practically? They're just saying, and it's not a bad thing. We need to put, without that even kind of vague understanding where this isn't clearly defined about having, you know, God and absolute morality and right and wrong and be able to call things good, bad, or evil, you're, you're, in a rudderless, you're in a morally rudderless ship. So in that sense, yes, there's definitely a push back to that. But without the subtleties, you're often getting people to espouse positions, I keep going back to the abortion thing, that are very extreme in the other way. And, 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 and there's a lot of nuance in there. And I'm a big believer that you need to find some common ground in there. Extremes either way are not going to work. Fundamentalism and religion, even if you say it's based on the Hebrew Bible, is not necessarily so. You know, the, some of the biggest oppressors of Jews are Christians who thought they were definitely doing God's will, as it says in the Bible. And, you know, they're, yet they're killing God's children. So it, it, it's not just because you say you got to have God there. You know, a lot of bad things, not that, you know, don't judge God by what people say in his name. Jonathan Sachs wrote a great book on that. You know, people say, do a lot of things. It's understanding what God really wants and really getting to the root of it and wanting truth and not just justifying your position and using God as the, the foil for it is what you have to be careful of. Um, in, in terms of an interesting tr thing that I've noticed dealing with a lot of Christians and speaking to a lot of Christian audiences, there's definitely a move to support Israel amongst that community out of a recognition that Israel, modern Israel, the Jewish people who are the inhabitants of the modern state of Israel are based on the biblical Israel that brought the Bible to the world and Israel is the source and America is the symbol of the values of Western democracy which creates that incredibly strong alliance which is not based on the APAC lobby 
The people who truly understand what the relationship is about, it's not about lobbying in Congress and who's giving money to which congressman to vote for foreign aid for Israel kind of stuff, but in the recognition that on the deepest ideological level, there's a convergence because when you really understand where America comes from, again, you know, they got in God we trust on the money. It is the most biblically based country in the world and the roots and evil you know, is attacking, and it's not an accident that you know, Iran calls Israel the little Satan in America, the great Satan. They're actually pointing out something It's true. From their perspective, which is antithetical to our worldview, the source and the symbol are these two entities. And the third thing I've noticed, which is actually really interesting, taking place in a lot of the Christian world today, and a lot of people I interact with and I'm quite close with, is a recognition that what comes across as Christianity, a lot of it is impure outside influence. And that it's very interesting that a lot of people say this to me, that, you know, Jesus was a Jew. He was a religious Jew. Jesus kept the Sabbath. He kept kosher. He didn't go to a church. And he didn't have Christmas or Easter. So a lot of these, it's interesting, a lot of these people, I have nothing to say in this conversation. They're telling me this. I'm not trying to talk them out of their beliefs. But a lot of them are actually <clears throat> either somewhat observant, even though the law was not given to, to the, the Gentiles. You know, Judaism doesn't look, Judaism... God gave Noah seven laws, that Jews have additional laws, but a lot of these Christians that have a desire to get to the pure faith, just as a lot of these scholars wanted to get to the undiluted biblical values by going into the original text in the Hebrew and looking at the commentaries, they want to go to what they believe is a pure faith that is based on authentic stuff that, you know, Jesus was doing this. I got to keep kosher. I got to keep Shabbat, even though they're not really from a Jewish perspective. No, you don't have to. You know, there's a very famous statement. The, right, the righteous of the nations of the world have a place in the world to come. You don't have to be Jewish to go to heaven. It's very inclusive, much more so than Christianity has been historically or Islam has been. But it's interesting that what is going on is this amongst not, obviously not all evangelical Christians, but I've noticed a lot that this desire to connect, to learn Hebrew, to study, be able to study the texts. So it's all part of this kind of like package deal of connect to Israel, connect to your biblical roots, even your Jewish roots, even though you're not originally from the seed of Abraham and you're coming from somewhere else. And so it's a very interesting process that we see going on, which is causing, I think, a big split within the Christian world too itself that I've noticed as an outsider between mainstream churches and little breakaway churches and even within those churches, people coming to me and telling me that their, their theological ideas are very different from what would be considered mainstream Christianity today. So there's a lot going on in the world on a lot of levels, politically and spiritually. The word democracy comes from Ath Greece, Athens, and democracy is the people rule. So, and the Greeks, when I talk about this topic, I talk about how the Greeks had, in America today, you have representational democracy. You vote, but you don't vote directly on issues. You vote for people who represent you. Greek democracy was citizens voted directly, but when you see who citizens were, it was an oligarchy. You had an elite bunch of men with land, as I always call them, who had all the political power. That's a very common attitude, even up into modern times. The notion of the common person, poorly educated, thinking about his only his narrow personal self-interest should have a say in politics is far from an ideal system. So while we use the term democracy today, America was not founded as a democracy. It was founded as a republic, actually. And um, while we use the term democracy as, as sort of a, a label on the form of government, it is if you could have beamed yourself back to classical Greece and said, you know, that in the United States, fast forward to this country that's going to come into existence thousands of years from now, where everyone is going to have political rights, man, woman, rich, poor, 
and be treated equally before the same laws, they would have laughed at you. They say, you're out of your mind. That's a crazy idea. So while we kind of transported the idea because so much of the modern world is a synthesis of they call Judeo-Christian ethics and Western classical civilization, in practical application of the concept of what America is today, it is dramatically different from what that idea of democracy was back then, which was really a, a power elite. It wasn't all power lined up in one person, a tyranny or an absolute monarch, but it was an oligarchy of a, a very limited number of people having complete say over what society is doing, and everyone else is disenfranchised and locked out of and locked out of that system. By the way, Judaism does not espouse democracy either. Um, the Jewish system doesn't have, you don't have representational government. The idea is personal autonomy, and you take responsibility for yourself, but you do have a king, but he's checks and balances. Uh, the, the, to be in, unlike today, where anyone who's involved in politics knows that it's a game. It has to do with political support, money, your pack. It has nothing to do with your competence, your clarity, your ability to think clearly. The founding fathers, I think, would be horrified by some of the people who are elected representatives of today. Judaism was, on a political level, a meritocracy that the best person for the job in terms of being a judge was the person who out of his character and his knowledge and peer recognition, not the masses voting for you because you're more popular and you're doling out money here and there. You know, like I always said, how did Einstein get to be the greatest scientific mind since Sir Isaac Newton? There was no committee that elected him. It was recognition of his genius and the fact that he came up with things like general relativity. You rose to the top based on your hard work and your abilities, which is... Which is which is you want to, which is a huge problem in the world today. Everyone wants they want equality of outcome. Equality of outcome is the most dangerous idea in the world. You have to have equality of opportunity. So whereas the notion of people voting is not a Jewish idea, but democracy, which has emerged, is kind of a synthesis of these Jewish ideas combined with this classical Greek idea into a relatively workable form of government that I think Winston Churchill said it the best. He said, democracy is the worst form of government except for every other system we've tried from time to time throughout history. So while it falls short of the biblical idea of what government was about, at least it creates a level of stability and a, and a, and a check on tyranny and absolutism that has created systems of government that have been the most polit stable, politically stable and the most economically successful. And the fact that I always point out that no democracy has ever gone to war with another democracy is an amazing fact of history. Because at least on the most basic level, people don't want to die. So if they're going to vote, they're not going to vote to commit suicide or have them get killed in a war or be used as cannon fodder by some totalitarian who doesn't care about them. There's, there was a narrative sort of foisted on collective you know, educational system of America. I don't know if people teach anything like this at all today. I doubt they even go through these different... I find when I ask my students, you know, classical period, medieval period, Renaissance, Enlightenment, they look at me like, you know, I got to ask my phone... But from what I learned, having that more you know, traditional American education, I think it was based on a... a, a I, I, I can't find like a conspiracy theory, a bunch of guys sitting in a room saying we got to write this differently. But what Eric Nelson brings out in his book, which is so interesting, is that it's a complete misreading of an understanding of the evolution of the United States based on the notion that somehow it's it's a misunderstanding of church and state. It would be interesting to do as a research project, and maybe Eric Nelson can shed light on that, as to where this first appears, because you don't find people learning. I would say, as from, from my limited understanding of it, as America emerges from its colonial period of the, you know, the Puritans and the Huguenots and people like that who are really fundamentalist, and emerges into the founding father period of the 18th century, who use the Bible to justify their own political agenda and were much less into 
the, the, the almost fanatical adhesion to the Bible that the earlier settlers of America had, I think that's where we start to distinguish between the Bible as, a, as, as really the foundation versus using the Bible selectively as a source to justify our agenda. The fact that they came to the conclusion that God abhors monarchies is not really, maybe they should have brought a couple of rabbis into the discussion. I would have loved to be myself back in time and explain it's a little more nuanced than that. Kingship is an ideal form of government in Israel. The Messiah is a king. King David is viewed as one of the greatest characters and King Solomon. But you have to understand the Jewish concept of kingship within the political, the polity of biblical Israel to understand the proper kind of monarchy and the fact that God is upset when the Jewish people ask for a king and he anoints Saul, not because they ask for a king so much as they ask for the king for the wrong reasons. Like we're tired of like taking responsibility for ourselves. Just give us a king to decide. And God's like, uh uh-uh. When you ask for a king, it's when you have your act together and you've reached and it's a great lesson, by the way. It's so relevant today. I always use this quote when I'm teaching. Every generation gets the leadership they deserve. When you have a country, when you have a country of people who are well-educated, independent people, they're not going to tolerate dictatorial, poor leadership. They're going to want A-level guys running it. They're not going to. So when you're, when you're, when you got ignorant people who are disenfranchised, who just want someone to make just beat us up and tell us what to do so we don't have to decide, you're going to get those kind of leaders. So leadership is an expression. It's a fundamental concept in Judaism. Leadership is an expression of the collective level of the people. So the Hebrew Bible is so fundamental to the founding of America because it introduces the most important concept that there is a creator of the universe. He knows and controls everything. And that infinite being gives creation certain absolute values and standards and without that and that is by the way the great the great influence that Judaism had on the world was introducing to a world that was completely polytheistic and and moral, morally relativistic an idea of an absolute god and an absolute standard of morality otherwise you get tremendous vacillations between one side and the other jewish law by the way is only based on principle never on precedent when you have an absolute being you only have principles which is why you can get an American law. You can have something legal one day and the Supreme Court decides another day and it's the other way. Judaism would say, no, no, no. There may be ways of applying that principle slightly differently within certain red lines, but this is the most, on a moral level, on a governmental level, and on a spiritual level, this is the most stabilizing idea in all of human history. That is the foundational principles on which America is founded, that you know, one nation under God we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that there is principles and there are ideas that are absolute and not subject to human interpretation. When humans get involved, it always goes south eventually. And that is the great stability and foundation of, of America that gives us not only, not only um, uh, rights and responsibilities, but gives us a moral barometer and a compass in which to direct our country based on values that never change. The problem is when you remove that, you know, there's, a, there's an American social thinker named Will, Will Herbert in the, 19, in the 19, mid, mid 20th century, he brought up this idea of cut flower ethics. And, he, and I'm just simplifying his beautiful statement, which is one of the most powerful statements. He said, cut flowers in a vase look nice for a couple of days, but because you've severed them from their roots, they wither and die. He said, so too with the values and principles of, of Western liberal democracy and, and the United States. If you sever them from their biblical roots and these foundational ideas, if you, if you don't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, 
You know, if you don't recognize that this is something that transcends, it's immutable, it never changes, you're going to eventually, it's going to wither and die. And you're seeing the withering and dying now. You're seeing the people moving off those central principles and into ideas that are antithetical to you know, the rea- reality almost today. It's, it's a very, very dangerous, slippery slope that we are sliding down. But on a deeper level, in terms of the moral fabric of a society, there's a great quote by Rabbi Israel Meir Lau, who is a very fascinating elder rabbinic statement of Israel today, one of the youngest survivors of Buchenwald. And he has one of my favorite quotes. And he's talking about the Jewish people and their future, but it holds true for all countries. He says, a nation that doesn't value its past has no right to dream about its future. And that's such a powerful idea. If you burn down, if you think that your country is in its core is founded on sin and evil, there's, there's, that's what all revolutionary movements of the Marxist nature are based on. We got to burn, burn baby, burn. We got to tear it all down. And it's never replaced with anything better. It's always replaced with another form of tyranny that is worse and anarchy and economic and political destruction, which is very threatening. And history proves this over and over again. So this notion of destroying America is an experiment that it's a flawed country. It's made mistakes. No country is perfect. But it's the greatest political experiment in human history, in my opinion. It's been the most successful country, the land of opportunity. The fact that if it's such an evil country, then why are so many millions of people trying to cross the border from 150 different countries to Mexico to get here? It's such a bad place. Go to Sweden. Everyone knows this is bottom line. With all of its flaws and imperfections, an amazing experiment, precisely because of the principles it's based on and the opportunity created because it was based on those principles. And to destroy that is to destroy the America and, 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 and do damage that hope that could be irreparable. So the reason why non-Jews should be concerned with anti-Semitism um, is, is, first of all, what you, you have to... You have to Always when you look at anti-Semitism, which is a huge topic, so I can't do it justice in a simple answer, but Jews are accused of many different things in this world throughout history. We kidnap Christian babies, use their blood to bake matzo, we poison wells, we're in league with the devil, we control the world's economy, seismic activity, the animal kingdom, you know, we, we send sharks to, to destroy Egyptian tourism, vultures to spy on Saudi Arabia, Iran accused Israel three years ago of stealing its cloud cover. But all those excuses aside, the way the Jewish people understand anti-Semitism is that Jewish people from Abraham onward for 3,700 years have been dragging the world, kicking and screaming towards a vision of values based on one God and one absolute standard of morality. And anti-Semitism, and even though people believe many of these excuses, it's like a doctor looking at the sores on the skin but missing the disease in the body, the deep, on the deep, often subconscious, subliminal level, what drives anti-Semitism is a rebellion against the national historic mission of the Jewish people to bring these ideas, this idea of one God and one absolute values into the world. And therefore, when evil will come into the world, even Jews who are disconnected from Judaism, they have this, the true hater of the Jew recognizes they got this in their soul. These people are like a, Hitler calls the Jews basilicus bacteria. One Jew with no Jewish education allowed to survive will spread this Jewish ideology around the world. So every Jew has to go. But that means when evil comes into the world, it will target Jews first. You can literally tell how a country is doing in terms of its human rights and democracy In the words of Dennis Prager and Joseph Telushkin, Jews are the canary in the coal mine. Miners 100, 200 years ago, before they had modern gas detection equipment, would bring a canary in. And if you see Polly convulsing on the perch and falling over and dying, you better get out of that mine because there's something dangerous that you haven't seen yet, but it went after Polly first. So too, 
when you see countries that start to mistreat their Jews or are already mistreating their Jews, they're either totalitarian or moving towards totalitarianism. George Gilder, who's not Jewish, wrote a book called The Israel Test. And he basically says, if I could paraphrase what he says, just as Jews within a country are the measure of that country's values and morality, Israel the state is the Jew amongst the nation. Show me what a country thinks about Israel and I'll tell you all about their human rights and democracy. It's not an accident that Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, Cuba, they hate Israel. Because it's the exact same thing macro on a, on a country level. But what is that? why should that concern non-Jews? Because that means the disease is spreading. It's just attacking the, the, the organ that's most sensitive to it. But once it gets through there and burns its way through the Jews, it's going to come after everyone else. And if it's not stopped you know, early on and snuffed out, it's going to come to your doorstep. And that is why all people who are concerned with preserving the rights and values of of of, of of liberal, free, just Western civilization need to confront anti-Semitism because it's a cancer that will, will destroy ultimately the entire world. Thank you again for joining me on this edition of Proclaiming Justice. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. For more information about how you can get involved, please visit our website at pjtn.org. As a PJTN watchman, you can help us keep up the fight to preserve our freedom for our children and their children for such a time as this.